Well, this is a season of firsts. I actually uh, have not been present at one other. Not loud enough? Too loud. Yes, I did. I put the tape recorder on. I have actually not been present at one other Book Arts Press lecture, but this is the first time we've ever uh, had to change the lecturer because of the illness of the lecturer. David Warrington is home in bed with the flu, uh, something which I learned late this morning. The substitution that I propose was meant for a different place and a different audience, and I offer it more as an exercise in anthropology than I do in bibliography, since it was originally designed for an audience of nearly 100 people on Sunday morning in darkest Iowa at a conference not of bibliographers, but of those interested in the history of papermaking. So you'll see what you think after you hear it. <clears throat> when we talk about a book, say, for instance, Nathaniel Hawthorne's The House of the Seven Gables, we generally mean one, but not both, of two quite different things. We may be talking about this book as an intellectual construct, a very particular assemblage of words and sentences forming the text of Hawthorne's novel, but made manifest through any one of a great number of existing copies. On the other hand, we may be talking about a particular copy of the House of the Seven Gables as a singular, unique, physical object. We may, for instance, be talking about the copy of the first edition of the House of the Seven Gables at Harvard with a manuscript inscription by the author. Or we may be talking about the copy of the 1988 Penguin edition available at this moment for sale at Papyrus Books at the corner of 114th and Broadway. Specifically, that particular copy of the Penguin edition of The House of the Seven Gables, located third from the left in the row of novels on the second shelf from the top, in the classics section at Papyrus Books, the copy with the bent cover, a single, unique, physical object. When we use one or the other of these two quite different meanings of the word book, we almost always do so without feeling the need for further descriptive explanation, confident that the context will make clear whether we're talking about any copy of a particular title or a particular copy of any title. But those of us who deal on a frequent basis with books as physical objects tend, I think, to forget that most people are concerned with books as intellectual constructs and not as physical objects. Most people think of paper primarily as a support for whatever text happens to be sitting on its surface. Consider the following little story. Some years ago, a Canadian papermaker working at Massey College in Toronto named Andrew Smith produced a special book. He made sheets of paper by hand, and he then bound up the folded sheets to make a blank book. He then cut up a Canadian $100 bill into little pieces and pasted the pieces onto various leaves of his blank book. If I remember correctly, he called his completed work paper money, and he offered it for sale at a great deal more than $100 Canadian. Now, many persons who saw copies of paper money were outraged by it, thus no doubt fulfilling the intention of the paper maker. 
which was surely to focus attention on the difference between paper as intellectual construct and paper as physical object. The difference between the House of the Seven Gables as intellectual construct as opposed to physical artifact is one that we're so used to usually that we never think about it. But consider a quite different situation in the art world. When we talk about Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa, we're usually referring to a particular painting hanging in the Louvre in Paris. There's little likelihood that anyone is, in a conversation, going to confuse the Paris painting with, say, the picture on the package of Mona Lisa chocolates. When I say that I've never seen the Mona Lisa, you know just what I mean, that I've never actually stood in front of the thing at the Louvre. You assume that I know what the Mona Lisa is and what it looks like because of the availability of copies of the original, not only on the candy shelf at university food markets across the street, but also in the art books that I used in school and on postcards and so on. But whereas reproductions of the Mona Lisa may be more or less acceptable or convenient substitutes for the original painting, nobody pretends that they are satisfactory replacements for the original. Thus, while I can speak fairly easily about the House of the Seven Gables in both an intellectual and an artifactual way, the book versus a particular copy of the book, I have considerably more difficulty in doing so about the Mona Lisa, which in at least many ways is not an intellectual construct at all. It is simply and necessarily and inescapably an artifact. With this distinction in mind, consider the difference between general librarians and rare book librarians. General librarians are concerned with intellectual construct. Rare book librarians are concerned with physical objects. Rare book librarians are, relatively speaking, very few in number. General librarians, at least by comparison, are very numerous. The library profession in this country over the past century and more has been dominated by persons concerned with books as intellectual constructs, professionals dedicated to making information available as broadly as possible to the widest number of persons possible, and good for them, a noble undertaking which can, however, go too far. Books are for use, they have argued, and continue to argue. If your copy gets used up in the process of being read, then get another one, or buy a reprint or use a microfilm copy, or make a Xerox, or find a copy available in machine-readable form. General librarians are suspicious towards all constraints on access towards knowledge, including the constraints imposed by rare book librarians on the use of the rare and fragile materials in their charge. And what is true of general librarians is even more true of most general readers, who almost always think in terms of intellectual constructs, not physical objects. And because this is so, because there are a great many readers and general librarians and relatively few rare book librarians and persons otherwise interested in the history of the book as a physical object, an important job of education faces us. It behooves all those who are interested in books as physical objects in general and in the paper on which they are printed in particular to join in the effort to help libraries identify physically interesting books in their possession and encourage them to retain such books as physical objects in their present condition without rebinding them or putting their intellectual contents into a different physical format. It has seemed to me that one good way to forward such a development is to sensitize rare book librarians themselves to the importance of the physical nature of the materials in their care and to encourage them to learn as much as they can about the type, paper, printing, illustrations, binding, and the original distribution and later destinations of their books.
so that they will be able to defend them as physical objects, if necessary, against their own general library supervisors. The more knowledgeable curators are, the less bullyable they are. This is my justification for establishing Rare Book School at Columbia University in 1983 and for causing to be offered therein such courses as the physical bibliography of early printed books or the history of papermaking or the history of typography or the history of binding or the history of book illustration and so on. Granted that rare book librarians now or eventually gain a thorough understanding of and a proper respect for the book as a physical object, the next step, you might think, is to carry the message to the general librarians who supervise rare book librarians. In many cases, this is not difficult to do. A case in point by way of illustration. Consider a little 18th century English New Testament, worn, never very sturdy to begin with, and now in a rotting, in a rotting sheepskin cover, with its leaves dog-eared and stained, an ugly object physically, and one with virtually no financial value. 18th century Bibles are very common books. But what if I told you that this particular copy of the New Testament was once owned by Nathan Hale, and that it was in his pocket in 1776 when he was hanged by the British in New York as a spy? The talismanic qualities of this copy of the book, its artifactual values, now go up enormously, for reasons which may resist logical analysis, but which are very real nonetheless. The book may be physically in bad shape, but it must be conserved as an object. A microfilm or a photocopy of Nathan Hale's pocket New Testament has all the appeal of a kiss through a pane of glass. We need the real thing in this instance, because the book has value only as a physical object. Nobody is ever going to read this copy of the New Testament. In concerning ourselves with the artifactual aspects of books, we do not need to draw only on examples which rely on patriotic sentiment for their argument. Take Life magazine. The history of commercial color photography in this country was written in the pages of Life. It was immensely popular. Was there a barbershop or beauty parlor in the 1950s that didn't have copies, of you, copies for you to look at, assuming you were then old enough to go to barbershops or beauty parlors? Libraries, too, bought in bound-up copies, usually too many issues in one volume, however, with the result that most library runs of Life magazine are now in rather bad shape, and their physical condition is not helped by the fact that Life was printed on a heavy clay-coated paper from which the ink cracks off when you fold it even once. Leonard Schlosser was at the Iowa conference, and he pointed out that not only is Life printed on a clay-coated paper, Life was enabled by that same clay-coated paper, and the reason why Life magazine happened when it did was that Henry Luce discovered the existence of paper of that kind and realized it was, therefore, possible to do a magazine on a mass-market basis like Life magazine. So, in fact, it was the technology that created the format in exactly the same way that the introduction of steel engraving in England, for example, in the 1830s created the illustrated novel. So I was saying the physical condition of Life magazine is not helped by the fact that Life was printed on a heavy clay-coated paper from which the ink cracks off when you fold it even once. No matter, we may think, Life magazine is available on microfilm. Or is it? 
The microfilm is available, and Columbia University has a copy right down the hall. The microfilm is in black and white. Color microfilm, like other kinds of color film, is inherently unstable. The colors don't stay true. Microfilm vendors don't use it, and librarians don't buy it. If you wish to study the history of commercial color photography, then, you'd better have access to a run of the original Life magazine. The black and white microfilm just won't do. As it happens, long runs of life are becoming rather pricey objects, and it will cost you several thousand dollars to get a complete one. You see, your crazy Aunt Agnes was right. She always kept her copies of Life magazine. She said it would be valuable someday. Well, now it is. Examples of books with important artifactual aspects can be easily multiplied in attempting to convince persons with intellectual construct instincts of their value. Among my favorite objects are late 19th and early 20th century books with pictorial cloth bindings. In the 1920s, hardbound books began more and more routinely to be issued with paper dust jackets, making a handsome cover, making a handsome cloth cover less visible and therefore a less compelling sales necessity. And most trade books published since the First World War have, at least from an artistic point of view, much more interesting dust jackets than cloth covers underneath. But the cloth covers produced during the period between 1890 and 1915 or thereabouts are fascinating. Bright and colorful, cleverly and beautifully designed, they are sometimes signed with the initials of their designers, who were often women. Indeed, it was one of the first areas where artists like Margaret Armstrong or Alice Morse or Sarah Whitman could find satisfying professional work. <coughs> you can see photographs of these cloth bindings, generally in black and white, in any history of bookbinding. But surely this is just like saying you can see a photograph of the Mona Lisa in any textbook history of art. The photograph may be a useful aid memoir for the original, but it is best a convenient substitute and not at all a satisfactory replacement for the original. It's finally the case, we might argue, that many books, especially but not exclusively our older ones, have permanent value only as physical objects. There's no need to read the seventh printing of the House of the Seven Gables, as opposed to the sixth or the eighth printing. Any reasonably well-edited version of the book will do. This being the case, a copy of the seventh printing of the House of the Seven Gables is as disposable as last week's TV guide, unless a particular copy of the seventh printing was annotated by Theodore Roosevelt or has the signature of Marianne Moore on the flyleaf or contains color plates by Arthur Rackham or has other sufficiently compelling artifactual qualities. All of which is to say that by no means all or even many of the surviving copies of the seventh printing of the House of the Seven Gables will or even particularly require to be preserved. And furthermore, it may also be that not even the intellectual contents of the seventh printing may be need to be preserved if they don't differ significantly from the intellectual contents of earlier printings of the book. On the other hand, some copies of the seventh printing are going to be valuable as physical objects, as artifacts, and are going to need to be looked after. And I had to cut a small part here because it was conference-specific to Iowa. I went on, here is the justification for such conferences as the one on the history of papermaking that I attended, helping to equip us all 
for what are going to be very interesting times over the next several decades in the world of the physical book. You will remember the Chinese proverb, let me not live in interesting times. This does seem to be a good time both to look ahead and in doing so to look back as well. We've seen a great flowering of our joint concerns over the past 20 years or so, but recent signs of slowing down. Of the great growth since the early 1970s, there can be no doubt. Think just of the new journals and newsletters that have appeared since the founding of the bibliography newsletter in 1973, to take a date that sticks in my mind. Fine print. The newsletter of the American Printing History Association, itself founded in 1974, and its journal, Printing History. The newsletters of the Guild of Book Workers and of the American Typecasters Fellowship. The Paper Conservator, Hand Papermaking, Ink and Gall, the Abbey Newsletter, and more recently, the Alkaline Paper Advocate, Conservation Administration News, The New Bookbinder, Publishing History, Factotum, Analytical and Enumerative Bibliography from Northern Illinois, Rare Books and Manuscripts Librarianship from RBMS. The list goes on and on. <coughs> Why the sharp increase of interest in the book arts in the 1970s? represented by such an outburst of journals. One reason may be that the book as a physical object began to become more visible in the 1960s as non-print media became ever more important as a means of communication and as computer-generated machine-readable information sources began for the first time to become common. Machine-readable information, for the most part, displayed or set forth on paper, to be sure, and often in book format but disposable, to use and throw away, because backed by electronic originals. Yes, I know folks have been predicting the end of the Codex book since McLuhan and before, but still, look around. You can now buy, and cheaply, a CRT Bible or a CRT Shakespeare. They're no longer laptop, they're palm top. Surely, we're going to be renting or buying book chips the way we now rent or buy video cassette tapes for use in our own personal reading and viewing devices. Codex books are going to continue to be a part of our lives and an important one. But books are already a lot more visible to most people than they used to be, and they're going to be a lot more so in the near future. The fish don't see the water they swim in, but they certainly notice it when the level in the tank begins to sink. Most of us have a considerable instinctive affection for the Codex book. One of my own cheaper party tricks in teaching descriptive bibliography here is to take a late 19th or early 20th century book, usually a cloth-bound one with a pictorial cover, hold the book up and talk about its contents, design and construction, and then, without warning, rip it in half and systematically tear it to shreds as I accuse my horrified students of being overly sentimental about the book as a physical object. Books, I say, as I toss the shards of the one I have just destroyed into the waste paper basket, are to use. I think that our sentimentality towards the physical book has been growing as the book becomes, slowly but surely, ever less necessary a part of our daily lives. A parallel case presents itself. As a society, we are far more sentimental about the horse since it ceased to be our major mode of transportation. 
we use horses now mostly for play, not for work. The same thing, slowly but surely, is happening with the physical book. It is becoming more an object of play than of work. Our substitutional formats are becoming more and more sophisticated. And soon, for example, the argument I used a moment ago in favor of preserving hard copies of Life magazine is no longer going to be valid. We will no longer need to rely on black and white microfilm of Life magazine. Instead, we will have high-resolution video copies in color on compact discs with easy access to any year or week in Life's magazine long run, fully indexed and copies of the CD will be almost everywhere available. What's going to happen to our originals as our substitutional formats get better and better and convey a greater and greater amount of the information provided by the original physical object? But ah, you reply, the presence of Life magazine in digitized form on a compact disc does not relieve us of the necessity of holding on to our hard copies. We still need the hard copies to study such obvious aspects of the original as the paper on which it was printed. Hold the thought. James Thurber once suggested that a dog's best friend was probably another dog. An old book's best friend is indifference. At the moment, books do best and last longest when they are kept closed on the shelf, uncatalogued, unread, unexhibited, unrebound, unmicrofilmed, unphotographed, uninteresting, unopened, unused, unloved, untouched. In most library contexts, books achieve a state so eminently suitable to their physical preservation only by accident. They are there, ready to be used. Only as it happens, no one wants to use them. In this curious position, such books have, at least until recently, been allowed to remain without question. Research libraries, after all, are largely made up of books that at any given moment nobody wants to read. In the several decades since the end of the Second World War, research libraries in this country have been almost uniformly enthusiastic about increasing rapidly in size, partly in order to support their research missions, partly from local or regional pride, and partly because, left to their own devices, libraries tend to grow almost all by themselves anyway. American rare book collections have grown along with the general research libraries of which they are almost always a part. Many of them, indeed, have grown more rapidly than their general counterparts. This has been the general situation since the Second World War, and I wonder how much longer it's going to last. Consider the following. In the 1986 pre-conference of the rare book and manuscript section of ACRL held at Stanford University, Daniel Traster, curator of rare books at the University of Pennsylvania, gave a notable speech in which he described his reasons for buying for the University of Pennsylvania from Marlborough Rare Books in London, an obscure and anonymous 1776 English epistolary novel called The Husband's Resentment, or The History of Lady Manchester. The book is scarce. The only other recorded copy is in the British Library. Traster which is to say the University of Pennsylvania, paid about $800 for the book. And Traster's speech at the Stanford pre-conference consisted of a detailed explanation of the significance of the text of the book and its relevance particularly to 18th century women's history studies. His justification centered on the text of the book 
He never mentioned the book's paper or its type or its binding. The text of the book he described sounded like a very interesting one indeed. And after hearing his talk, my only question was why he had paid $800 for the Marlboro Rare Book copy rather than $25 for a microfilm of the British Library copy. We all know that using an original is better and certainly more fun than using a copy, but is it $775 better, the difference in price between the Marlboro Rare Books copy and the British Library's microfilm? I would have been much more comfortable with Traster's speech if he had defended his purchase on physical grounds, the presence of illustrations, or printed on unusual paper, or with interesting annotations, or having an unusual binding, something. He justified having the text, the intellectual construct. He did not justify buying a copy of the physical book itself. No rare book library can buy or catalog or house or preserve everything. All libraries increasingly must rely on copies, whether microform or, other, or otherwise physically reformatted versions of originals held elsewhere, or physically reformatted copies of their own originals originals which have often been destroyed in the process of reformatting or discarded after reformatting as being no longer cost-effective or otherwise necessary to retain in their original form. Most research libraries are going to continue indefinitely to hang on to part of their holdings in their original formats, particularly their rare book holdings, but we're not going to be able to continue to preserve in their original format a great many old books and rare book librarians are going to become increasingly expert at the techniques of triage, separating the seriously hurt from the walking wounded and leaving the moribund behind. The old books most likely to survive are those still in good condition and in their original or at least contemporary bindings. Old books rebound, <coughs> excuse me, old books rebound in Class A library buckram with no intrinsic artistic or at least some sort of graphic appeal are going to have a hard time of it. And many of them are going to end up as sanitary landfill. Indeed, rare book librarians are going to discover that a growing part of their job is to lead the procession to the dump. Put in a slightly different way, the books that are most likely to survive in rare book and other special collections are those which have importance or significance or relevance as physical objects. There will thus be continuing pressure for rare book libraries to become museums of the book, a movement which will, however, cause increasing tensions between these rare book librarians and the larger institutions of which they are usually a part. Rare book libraries may become museums of the book, but are most academic libraries going to be willing to support the expenses of such museum operations, or are most academic institutions as a whole? Returning to my earlier example, Will research libraries as a whole be willing to maintain hard copies of Life magazine as our substitutional formats become more and more satisfactory alternatives for the original? More satisfactory alternatives to the originals for most purposes, not for your purposes perhaps, because you poor soul are interested in the paper on which it's printed, for example, but for the purposes of the vast majority of general readers. Institutions that decide to sell their artifacts and get out of the physical object business entirely, and many of them are going to do just that in the near future, you may be sure, will not do so merely from a desire to make money. They won't get that much for their rare books by and large. They will sell because they want to save money, 
to save housing costs, to save preservation costs, and, and most of all, to save staffing costs. It won't all happen in the next decade, but in the next 50 years, I predict, we're going to see the wholesale transfer of old books out of American academic and other rare book libraries at a scale that we have not seen anywhere since the decades following the French Revolution. Well, that's over the next 50 years. Let me yank you back nearer to the present and return to another reason why we live in interesting times. In 1977, speaking at Columbia, Rollo Silver said publicly that if he had had to begin his scholarly career again in the 1970s, he could never have written his books and articles because of the many and steadily increasing restrictions on the use of materials in the libraries he had used over the past several decades. In this connection, <coughs> it is worth remembering that members of the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester had keys to the AAS building there until well within the tenure of its present director and could enter it to work at any time of the day or the night, including its stacks. Thus, Rollo Silver. On the other hand, there's Michael Winship, who says that if he had to begin work now on Jacob Blank's great multi-volume bibliography of American authors, bibliography of American literature, the first volume of which appeared in 1955, he could never do it. Copies of BAL books in their original bindings are rapidly disappearing to a considerable extent as the result of the current research library enthusiasm for rebinding, photocopying, microfilming, and other kinds of physical reformatting. A great many of the titles in the Blank Winship Bibliography of American Literature were originally published in the second half of the 19th century and the first three decades of the 20th century a time when the quality of materials used in bookmaking underwent a steady progressive deterioration as regards both permanence and durability. But the fault is not entirely with the paper and cloth from which 19th and early 20th century books are made. American libraries have been, at least until very recently, notoriously inhospitable physical environments for books, kept as they are in stacks that alternate between being too hot and too dry in the winter and too hot and too humid in the summer. One of my personal scholarly surprises was my first experience in using 17th and 18th century English books in English libraries. The paper in these books was white. I had been used to looking at Columbia and New York Public Library copies of the same books, whose paper was yellow. And I remember Michael Turner, the Oxford librarian's shock when he first saw ranges of English books in American libraries. He had thought that the older books in Bodley were showing signs of wear. American copies of English books were in much worse shape, he discovered. <clears throat> Environmental conditions have been improving in a great many rare book libraries in this country. Many of them are air-conditioned and humidity control, and some of them even leave their air conditioning on over the weekends. Rare book libraries are learning what their colleagues in museums have known for a much longer time, that their responsibilities are essentially curatorial in nature that they are primarily responsible for a collection of physical objects and not for the collection of intellectual constructs over which, by comparison, most general librarians preside and wish to preside. Increasingly, rare book librarians are so sensitive to the physical needs of the frequently very fragile material in their care that they take preservation as their primary mission, with the result that, unsurprisingly, tensions arise between readers and rare book librarians as to whether or not the readers will be allowed to read a certain original text or only a physically reformatted version of it. 
readers in libraries want to read books. That's why they're called readers. But what about bibliographers who have better things to do with books and to read them? Tensions also arise between bibliographers and rare book librarians as to whether or not the bibliographers will be allowed to study a certain original text as a physical object because of curatorial fears that an overly close physical examination or manipulation of the item will significantly damage it. What happens, in short, when Mr. Blank shows up at the door of the rare book room and wants to make a detailed collation of the first edition of the House of the Seven Gables? Or when Briquet shows up and wants to make a tracing of a watermark in one of the incunables? Or when Wolf shows up and wants to make a rubbing of one of the embossed leather bindings? Or when Morrison shows up and wants to look at one of the 17th century European type specimens through his pocket microscope? Or when Hinman shows up and wants to put one of the 16th century play editions into his collator? Or when I show up and want to roll my pocket photocopier across the first edition of Ivanhoe? or when you show up wanting to make a rubbing of a watermark. They don't let you walk on their 17th century Persian rugs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or let you drink out of their Renaissance wine glasses, or let you sit in their medieval chairs. Yet readers in rare book rooms, and bibliographically sophisticated ones in particular, routinely expect to be able to handle the rare books, to read them, and to finger them, and to collate them, and to place objects on them, and to rub, and trace, and photograph, and photocopy, and microfilm them. Not to be sure, Jacob Blank, or Monsieur Briquet, or Edwin Wolfe, or Stanley Morrison, or Charlton Hinman, all of whom may be presumed to be happily collating, and tracing, and rubbing, and otherwise torturing books as physical objects in the happy hunting grounds. But item, last month, Peter Herdrick and I finished the shooting for a half-hour videotape to be published in a couple of weeks and called The Anatomy of a Book Format During the Hand Press Period. I am here to tell you that sticking the business end of a Betacam video camera into the gutter of a backlit opening of a 1685 vellum-bound quarto edition of Juvenal in order to get a good look at the watermark in the inner margin does nothing for this book physically. In the videotape, we used and damaged a great many old books, many of them, to be sure, cripples of one sort or another donated to the Book Arts Press, the bibliographical laboratory of the School of Library Service for just such uses, but a grim business nevertheless. Item. The most knowledgeable person on the subject of decorated cloth bookbinding, I know, will occasionally make rubbings of cloth covers for her own research, but she will no longer teach students how to make rubbings. She has discovered that, damaging tends to da- that rubbing tends to damage cloth covers, especially where there is gold stamping. Many people will tell you that rubbing a binding doesn't damage it. She says different. And she knows. Item. I teach the principles of bibliographical format and collation for a living. The close physical examination of books, especially in the period from the early 17th century to the middle of the 19th century. Most of the books my students and I study are physically the worst for their having fallen into our clutches. My students call the course destructive bibliography. More than 400 of them have gone through my master's degree classes in descriptive bibliography at the School of Library Service, destroying books as they went. And considerably more than 100 others have taken the five-day course in descriptive bibliography offered since the mid-1980s at our annual summer rare book school.
And then I, I went on to point out that I was not alone in my sin here because the majority of the speakers and the conference organizers at Iowa all taught at Columbia in a rare book school or were graduates of its programs. Three of the other speakers, for example, are implicated in Columbia undertakings as rare book school evening lecturers. In addition, I said, doing their thing while in the middle distance, old books are slowly dismembered by earnest students. We are, in short, in the process of being hoisted by our own petards. We are increasingly interested in the book as a physical object, and rightly so. We segregate our rare books and prevent promiscuous access to them so that they will survive intact as accurate representations of their times. We want readers to take an interest in these books as physical objects, in their paper, type, illustrations, construction, binding, in their manuscript annotation, and other signs of use. Unfortunately, the close study of books as physical objects tends to damage the books. So where does this leave us? Over the short haul, students of the book as artifact are going to find that access to the objects they want to study is going to become increasingly difficult to obtain. Over the long haul, they're going to find such access to be increasingly impossible because a great many of the books will by then have become sanitary landfill. And because the relatively few remaining ones, the books which have been allowed to remain in their original physical formats because of their pristine condition or sentimental value as icons, will be so valuable that almost nobody will be allowed to look at them, let alone collate or trace or rub or otherwise fondle them. To some extent, it's apocalypse now. Did you see, or try to see, the Book of Kells when it went on exhibition in this country a decade or so ago? Did you read the recent statements about the limits on access from now on to the illuminated Duc de Berry manuscript books at Chantilly in France? No access to anybody ever, except maybe heads of states from now on. That's the new access policy. So there is no happy ending to my story. We live in interesting times, not happy ones. Apocalypse is not going to happen overnight. There are, at the moment, plenty of good, cheap, readily available books out there to study. Our job is to study them while we still have access to the physical resources with which to do so. Thank you. Well, this is an old song to most of you. Uh, why don't we go next door to room 502 and have a, glide, have a glass of wine while you can argue with me about it. <laughs>